Welcome to our very first episode of the Foreign Policy Provcast. My name is Mark Melton. I am the deputy editor here at Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. We thank you for listening today and feel free to tweet at us. We are at Prov Magazine and also be sure to check us out on our website at providencemag.com. In this first episode, we will be speaking with Joe LeConte. Joe is the Associate Professor of History at the King's College in New York. He is the author of A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, How Tolkien and C.S. Lewis Rediscovered Faith, Friendship, and Heroism in the Cataclysm of 1914 to 1918. So today, we... Had thought we were going to talk about the Clinton presidency (laughs) and how foreign policy would work, but we are adjusting and we're going to talk about how a Trump presidency and foreign policy would work. And so, uh, Joe, you were talking a little bit about how uh, you you weren't going to make any predictions. (laughs) But I'm going to make one. But you're going to make one. So what's your one prediction about a Trump presidency? My one prediction is is that uh, Donald Trump will face a foreign policy crisis during his four years. Something's going to come up that he didn't expect that's going to be of national, international concern. It'll, it'll relate to America's uh, national security interests. And I say this because it, this seems to be the pattern ever since the onset of the Cold War. I mean, let's just take more recent history. Take, you know, Jimmy Carter, uh, the, the Georgia governor, uh, didn't go into office thinking he was going to face an Iranian revolution, uh, the first takeover of a state in the Middle East by Islamic radicals, but that's what happened in 1978-79, right? And then the hostage crisis. Uh, so that, and of course, it, it, it meant the end of his presidency, and, and, and Ronald Reagan is ushered into office in 1980. Um, let's take uh, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, again, another guy who wanted to be a domestic policy president, the new Democrat, he didn't expect it to be a genocide in Rwanda. He didn't expect it to be a Bosnia uh, ethnic cleansing he'd have to deal with, but he had to deal with it reluctantly, right? Now take Barack Obama, who wanted to be essentially the anti-Bush president. Get the American troops out of Iraq, out of uh, Afghanistan, and that will lead to a more peaceful world, secure, stable, and peaceful world. That was his promise. That was his expectation. Well, what do we have? We have a meltdown in in Syria, which has created uh, the greatest refugee crisis we've seen since the Second World War. Barack Obama is certainly part of the reason for that. I'm not putting all the blame on him, but but the retrenchment of American power and the projection of American weakness in the world has certainly uh, helped to cause this massive humanitarian crisis, which is now at, at the doorstep of the of the quote unquote global community. Right. So, what are we going to get for, with uh, with Donald Trump? There's any number of possible international crises that can erupt on his watch. And so, the question for us, which I cannot answer, is how in the world is a Donald Trump? without a shred of international diplomatic experience, a man who doesn't like to read, a man who doesn't have any sense of America's really role in the world, uh, a man who's threatened actually to dismantle NATO, how is that individual going to respond to an international crisis? Nobody can predict. There are several different hot topic issues that have been going on with Trump, whether it's Russia, NATO, he, you know, how is he going to deal with the Islamic State? Will the Islamic State actually have much territory when he assumes yeah. the presidency? Yeah. Uh, China, North Korea, several. So, which of these topics do you think Trump should prioritize? That's a fabulous question. His, his. Uh, well, look, you've you've got to somehow get under control this Syrian crisis. 
because it's the refugee crisis continues to destabilize our democratic allies in Europe and our allies in the Middle East. I don't know what the easy answer is. There's no easy answer, of course, to, to, to Syria. But I think the idea that we can continue to be inattentive to uh, Assad's regime uh, and that we can continue to allow Russia to have the influence that it's having, that's a huge mistake. So I think he has got to get the best people uh, around him in a room and come up with a plan uh, to not just contain uh, the Syrian crisis, uh, but also to defeat ISIS, which has become such a part of that crisis now. He needs a plan to defeat ISIS, and, and the two are inextricably linked. Uh, as far as I can tell, when you when you uh, listen and read the, the the foreign policy experts on the ground, they don't think you can separate Syria from ISIS. So I think if he goes in thinking he can or he can, he, he can ignore it, it's simply going to aggravate the problem. Right. So there's a lot of talk here in D.C. and other places with Russia being involved there with their troops there and so forth and their backing of Assad that a Trump presidency could cut a deal with Assad and with Russia to attack ISIS. and. Uh, there's also some who say Assad must go and that you can't really deal with ISIS if Assad is still there because Assad is part of the problem. He's not able to control the territory yeah. with the animosity between the different sects yeah. of Sunnis. Yeah. What were your thoughts beyond that? Yeah, it's such a complicated uh, question right now, isn't it, Mark? I mean, uh, wearing my historian's hat for a moment, and there's, there are no exact historical parallels, but it's worth thinking about the fact that once uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt made a deal with Joseph Stalin and gave uh, the Soviet Union aid uh, in the Second World War to defeat the Nazis, we did that because we were not powerful enough to, to defeat Germany on our own. We felt like we, we needed the help of the Soviet Union, and so we made a pact. We made our own pact with Joseph Stalin, and we transformed him into Uncle Joe. That's literally what it was called and portrayed in the major media and by Franklin Roosevelt. Uncle Joe. Well, Uncle Joe, of course, was a butcher. Uh, he was a, a, a mirror version of, of, uh, of Hitler in so many ways in the way he treated the Soviet people. And so there was a cost. Yes, we were able to defeat uh, Germany, but there was a cost involved in bringing on Joseph Stalin, bringing on the Russians. So if you want to strike a deal with, with, with the devil in Moscow over there, uh, with Putin, uh, you strike your deal, but there's going to be a cost to pay. And at the end of the day, uh, I think they may well think this was a Faustian bargain and it's, and it's robbed us of our soul and it's robbed us of the influence we wanted to have and need to have in that region. That would be my warning. Another big issue is NATO. President-elect Trump has talked about how he may not defend allies if they don't spend yeah. enough on their military. Yeah. And it's been a common complaint out of DC that I've heard for since I've moved here a little more than a year ago, yeah. where lots of people complain about how the Europeans don't spend enough on military. Yeah. Personally, I look at that and say, well, my issue is not how much they spend, right. but what are their capabilities? Because you can boost spending pretty quickly by yeah. raising salaries without actually improving how many troops you can put yeah. on the ground. Yeah. Or your economy could shrink and you just keep spending at the same yeah. level and you get to that 2% level. Yeah. But what are your thoughts on Trump and NATO? Do you think yeah. that is a negotiating point, something that he's going to say, but then actually come to a deal? Or is this something more serious? Well, I, again, I'm not going to predict what Donald right. Trump's going to do with NATO because he's unpredictable, right? We have no record. But what we have are his words, his campaign promises and his suggestions. I think what's troubling about Trump 
with regards to NATO is that he doesn't seem to understand that the United States has made this investment in NATO since the late 1940s. And that investment has paid massive dividends for international peace and security, for America's national security interests. Part of the difficulty with the Trump being the businessman, the business tycoon, the casino tycoon uh, guy that he is, he sees almost everything through a kind of crass, materialist lens. And there's a value attached to the NATO alliance that goes way beyond what we invest versus what they invest. It's having this partnership with democratic allies, access to bases, uh, the, 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 the moral cachet that you get with having nations uh, acting in tandem against a common enemy. None of that is on, it seems, is on Trump's mental radar screen. All of the added benefits of having those alliances. We can hope he's going to bring people into his inner circle who actually appreciate the value of NATO. We can only hope. And another big issue, so China, what do you think some of the big issues in China are currently? Well, 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 Trump has said, uh, uh, right out of the gate, he's going to uh, slap the Chinese for, for un unfair trade practices uh, and may well start a trade war, throw up tariffs against China. I'll leave it to the economists to decide, is that going to hurt China more than it's going to hurt the United States, a trade war with China? I like the idea, certainly, of the United States uh, being a little tougher with China, because what I hear from my friends working in the uh, human rights realm, the NGOs, the human rights advocates, is that... So many nations just keep their mouths shut because of China's influence around the world. And I have no problem with naming and shaming China in different ways on the international human rights question. It's not clear to me yet what's the best strategy economically to put pressure on China to behave better with regards to human rights, religious liberty questions that uh, guys like you and me, we really care about. Right. I've heard some talk about parallels to pre-World War II in Japan. Do you think there's a historical parallel there or lessons to be learned? Well, certainly warnings. There's certainly uh, uh, lessons we want to be mindful of. We don't want to unnecessarily turn China into a belligerent nation. You know, we have a working relationship with the Chinese. There is, and there is some antagonism there. But we don't want to inflame a situation unnecessarily. And statesmen, good statesmen, will know that. They'll have to know how to tread. There are a whole different set of issues in the, in the Japanese relationship because there was a real racism going on uh, on the American side. Certainly Japanese on their side had their own racist problems. Uh, and that aggravated the international relations. That's not so much an issue now. Racism is not so much an issue now between China and the United States. It's, you know, we're, we're rivals. We're economic rivals. We're military rivals. How can you check Chinese influence uh, in Southeast Asia when that influence seems to be a pressuring against uh, democracy and against human rights? That's the pressure we need to bring to the Chinese. But I don't want to see us unnecessarily aggravate uh, the relationship. Where it needs to be aggravated, fine. But again, that's going to take a statesman to discern. You can't die on every hill, right? Right. And part of that, you need to have a grand strategy of what do you actually want to accomplish to decide yeah. what do you prioritize? Where right. do you, which hails do you Right. Who are our allies? They're obviously uh, protecting uh, Japan as a great democratic ally, protecting the South Koreans as a great uh, democratic ally. Uh, we spilled a lot of blood in South Korea to keep that, uh, that part of the, uh, the continent free. Uh, so we've got to make it real clear to the Chinese, those are vital American interests, those are uh, international uh, interests and concerns, and uh, there are messages you can send to the Chinese, short of starting a trade war, probably, uh, that America uh, has, has serious democratic interests and is going to defend them in Asia. And so you mentioned Korea, so there's yeah. also talk a lot about North Korea. Yeah. You know, North Korea is, has become the Frankenstein monster for the Chinese, hasn't it, in, in so many ways. Uh, China involved in the, in the Korean conflict in, in a major way to begin with, of course. Chinese troops were sent into Korea 
uh, to help the North Koreans in that in that fight. We lost 45, 48,000 uh, men, and and the, and the British as well lost so many in that war defending South Korea. So we've got to uh, protect the the territorial integrity, the the national security interests of of South Korea. Um, but the 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 regime in North Korea is so unpredictable, dare I say, even more unpredictable than Donald Trump. <laughs> Which makes it, e you know, even scarier for our friends on the left who are very scared about Donald Trump. Uh, that, that's small potatoes compared to the regime in, in North Korea. So they are treading especially ca uh, carefully uh, with real wisdom, projection of strength, but not recklessness when it comes to North Korea. That's, a, that's gonna be a real challenge. So Russia, yeah. what would, since you don't want to make any predictions on what Trump will do, <laughs> what would be your recommendation of what he should do and what he should not do? Well, look, Russia under Putin is aspiring to recapture some of its uh, quote-unquote uh, Soviet glory, to recapture its sense of empire and its strength. And you, it, it, Vladimir Putin is such a fascinating character because when the Soviet Union collapsed, and I think we'll talk about this later, when the Soviet Union collapsed 25 years ago uh, this year, uh, Vladimir Putin viewed that as a great tragedy, the greatest tragedy, I think, in, in modern history. That's how Putin view, views it. Well, the victims of Soviet communism, of course, take a different view about the collapse of the Soviet Union. So he's operating on an old KGB mode. Uh, and what that means is Putin will only respect strength. He will only respect a projection of American strength. And unfortunately, under eight years of Barack Obama, we've had just the opposite, the projection of American weakness. Uh, and so that's why Ukraine is so at risk right now. Yes, he's gobbled up Crimea. And you know he is circling uh, Ukraine like, like a hungry lion uh, waiting to pounce. So I think uh, this Trump administration is going to have to project strength. That means uh, a demonstration of our military strength, troops, the, the, uh, the American naval fleet, uh, our NATO allies conducting exercises. We've got to make it really clear to Putin that where the lines are. No, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, uh, but it's a vital interest to our, our national interests in the region. And so our NATO members need to make that clear. As, as a body, as an international body, NATO needs to make it clear. You, you don't, uh, Putin does not get to go into Ukraine and seize Ukraine or the Baltic states, which he has an eye on, of course, as well. So, and, and they are members of NATO. So uh, there are ways to make that very clear to Vladimir Putin militarily. And unfortunately, Barack Obama uh, has no will to do that and lacks the, uh, the, the vision. And I think, frankly, lacks the moral courage to do it. Another topic that's discussed sometimes in DC circles is the hope, at least of some Americans, that if Putin wasn't there, then Russia would behave differently. I don't necessarily fall into this camp because I think there's still Russian interest and Russian mentality. I would like to know what your thoughts are. If the issue is Putin or is the issue Russia? That's a fabulous question, Mark, and I'm not a Sovietologist, <laughs> right? Uh, so I, I left the Sovietologist to make the final determination. Here's what I would say, though. As an historian, um, when uh, Mikhail Gorbachev came on the scene in 1985, people on Ronald Reagan's right begged him not to negotiate with, with the new Soviet leader. They assumed that he would be in the same mold of a Brezhnev, a Khrushchev, a Stalin, that the Soviet Union could not change. But you had a real reformer in Mikhail Gorbachev. There are different reasons he emerged on the scene. He was not willing at the end of the day to send the tanks in to the uh, satellite states to put down those democratic revolutions because he was not a Brezhnev. 
The Brezhnev doctrine died under Mikhail Gorbachev. That's fascinating. He was a generally different leader. He wanted to revive the Soviet Union, no doubt about it. He was still committed to Leninism, but it was impossible to revive this, uh, uh, this corpse, this, uh, what was the word that uh, uh, Winston Churchill used? Epileptic corpse, I think was the language he once described. I think he actually used that to describe a, a, a political rival, but you, it certainly could be used to describe the Soviet Union in his last years, an epileptic corpse. Uh, I don't know uh, if uh, a leader can arise in modern Russia who would really be a genuine democratic reformer given the conditions. But I want to hold out the hope of that because Gorbachev, in a sense, he came out of nowhere. He came out of the crisis that was going on, the economic crisis that was going on in the Soviet Union. He recognized they needed some kind of reformer, an economic reformer. Gorbachev portrayed himself as that reformer with his perestroika and glasnost and, and all the rest of it. But can a genuine democratic reformer emerge in modern-day Russia? I want to hold out hope for that because something remarkable happened in 1985 under Gorbachev, so I don't want to rule that as a possibility. Is Russia's weakness now part of the problem, where it is lashing out in order to sustain the political power for the oligarchs? Economic weakness, I guess, will always be a factor, won't it? Uh, they don't have a, a, a real free capitalist system. There's so much corruption, the crony capitalism that does go on over there. You have an autocratic ruler. So if you have a weak economy and you're feeling like uh, you're trying to recapture some of your ancient uh, Soviet glory here, well, the way you're going to do that, uh, typically, historically, is you're going to act out aggressively in a military sense. You're going to try to project power. Russia has a military. It has a serious military. Of course, it has nuclear weapons. So it can project uh, strength and power up to a point. It has n nothing like the, the military capability of the United States, and Putin knows that. But uh, depending on who occupies the Oval Office, he will try to exploit Western and American weakness where he sees it. So uh, you know, we officially had a reset w under Obama. Uh, the Bush administration, uh, I don't think they used the term reset, but we had something similar to it, especially when Bush looked into his eyes and saw his soul. Is that the phrase? Something like that. I, saw, I yeah. looked into the soul of Vladimir Putin. I see a good man, right? Mm -hmm. And there's talk about when the Obama administration had a reset. There it was a transactional situation where we needed to move materials across Eurasia into Afghanistan. And that some people yeah. say that there was some success there because we were yes. able to do that. But do you think that there are lessons from those resets or temporary yeah. warming of relations between the US and Russia that then turned cold again? I think that's a great question, Mark. I think if there are lessons, it's uh, making the mistake of believing that because you're able to cooperate with the Russians in some limited ways, maybe with Afghanistan, where there's some mutual interest, making the mistake of then believing that you share all kinds of democratic, pro-democratic, pro-capitalist interests, pro-human rights interests. So I think it, whoever, uh, now it's with Donald Trump in, in, the, in the White House, uh, I'm not saying you can't ever work with the Russians in a limited way for limited objectives. But don't, don't then project that you have all of these shared democratic human rights interests. You don't. In so many ways, our interests and the interests of Vladimir Putin in Russia right now, they run counter on a whole host of issues. And I just think you have to be mindful of that with in, in going into every negotiation, every single one. And do you think that there's any opportunity for the United States to use its soft power 
across the Eurasian landmass. To, uh, for instance, you know, people talk about Voice of America sometimes, or there's other types of soft power strengthening, you know, freedom of the press and different organizations. Yeah. Or do you think that would provoke Russia to do more of the cyber attacks that we believe that Russia has done? Yeah. Um, now we may not be able to prove that in the court of law, but honestly, you can never do yeah. that in cyber. Yeah. But you know, I'm thinking about an interview I saw with a uh, a Russian student when uh, when Gorbachev came into power in 1985, uh, and he instituted this policy of glasnost, openness. There was a, there was more freedom to actually speak your mind under Gorbachev, and that happened fairly early, like within the first year or so. And the student said it was like the shackles were taken off, off, and it was just a it was a breath of fresh air. Suddenly, this idea of freedom became possible. So if we're going to use our soft power, I would say promote freedom of speech, free association, civil society, wherever, however you can. Because we never know what's going to happen. The genie gets out of the bottle and you can't put it back in. That would be my re recommendation on the soft power. So yeah, whether it's uh, through radio, through the internet, of course, uh, all kinds of ways we can encourage a vibrant civil society in that region. We have to do it. So being a historian, if you were to sit down and talk to Trump, for a few minutes, what lessons do you think Trump should be able to hear and that the American yeah. people should also think about yeah. in these situations? Yeah, there are lessons that uh, unfortunately Barack Obama either has not learned or has learned too late. And one of them is when the United States doesn't lead in the world, our democratic allies don't lead. They don't step up to the plate. They lack either the political will or the military capacity or the diplomatic uh, strength that's required. When America doesn't lead, usually uh, the democratic West does not uh, step up to do so. And what that does is it creates vacuums, power vacuums. And what will almost always fill those power vacuums is the worst case scenario. It's the forces of what? Of tyranny, of terrorism, of uh, deterioration and decay. Uh, those, are the, those are the spirits and the forces that will fill the vacuum, uh, the absence of American leadership. Um, and so that would be like point number one, uh, I think, for Donald Trump. That retrenchment, isolationism is simply not a policy. It will, that will not strengthen America's national security interests. That will make us less secure. That would be one of the huge lessons, it seems to me, over the last 60, 70 years. Uh, I put uh, number one. I guess number two, uh, lessons from the past, is um, you have got to surround yourself with people who will tell you things you do not want to hear wise men and women, uh, statesmen in their own right, a circle of advisors uh, who will challenge you. You have got to be willing to be overruled uh, by people who know better than you do. And I, well, the great example of this in, in the Western history, frankly, is Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill surrounded himself with advisors, a cabinet, who would and could overrule his military decision-making. He would not take a step forward in prosecuting the war if his cabinet I thought it was a bad idea. Now that's what democratic leaders do. They put a restraint on their immense power. And uh, Donald Trump, who was conducting himself as a businessman, who's never really had restraints, aside from economic restraints, what personal restraints have there been on him? That does not bode well, frankly, for him coming into the Oval Office, because now he's the most powerful man in the world. And the temptation will be to surround himself with sycophants, sycophantic admirers, and that will be a disaster for his administration, for the United States, and for the West if he does that.
You don't sound very hopeful. <laughs> we are recording this right now the week of yeah. the election, uh, yeah. a couple of days after the uh, announcement that he won. And uh, in foreign policy, I'm reading some articles talking about how he may not do all of the things he said on the campaign trail because yeah. he may come to office and realize, oh, I can't. Or yeah. that's maybe just the way he talks. And So you don't sound very hopeful that he will not go as far, or are you just cautious? I'm cautious. Okay. I'm cautious. I need more grounds to be, uh, I guess what, what some people say, optimistic. I need, I, need, I need rational grounds to be optimistic. I always want to be hopeful that the person in the Oval Office is going to lead this country well. The fact that we have someone who seems, from the historian's perspective, so manifestly unqualified to lead this country in a time of real crisis, that makes me cautious yeah I'm not hopeful yet because of his record and how unprecedented his election is um, I'm I'm cautious I, I want to become hopeful but it's gonna take some governing we'll have to see what he does in the first 90 days not the first hundred we guess he's the first, <laughs> first 90 yeah. yeah I wouldn't even give him 100 give him 90 <laughs> three months <laughs> so uh... What advice do you have for Christians in this time? And uh, whether you're talking to students at yeah. you know, your campus, what recommendations do you have for you know, college students, for people who may um, be called to serve in the administration? Yeah, thank you, Mark, for that question. There's been a lot of good commentary about Christians in public life, a lot of bad commentary as well uh, over this election cycle. So I can't uh, settle it all. Um, I guess speaking as an historian, speaking as a Christian, I always want to encourage young people to think about public service as a noble vocation, politics and public policy and public service as a noble uh, enterprise. I was involved in public policy for a number of years here in Washington, and I still, uh, of course, uh, try to be engaged through writing and commentary and conferences and all, um, in addition to wearing my hat as a, as a professor. Uh, it's a noble profession, and let's face it, we need men and women of great Christian conviction and great intelligence uh, to be involved in public life. Because if they're not there, if they're not salt and light in that realm, then we can expect it to, what, to sink to its lowest possible level without the restraining, without the uh, moralizing, and I mean that in the best possible way. Morally invigorating our public life is what our young people can do. They always bring tremendous passion and energy to the task, and we always need that. But we want it to be passion and energy that is rooted in something really sound, something transcendent something deeply Christian. Um, I don't know all the people that uh, Donald Trump will bring around him. I do know that uh, anyone who goes into that inner sanctum of the White House, they're going to be incredible temptations to compromise moral principle. There always are. Uh, and so we need men and women who can resist that temptation. There's a great line from uh, Thomas More, who served under Henry VIII uh, in a time of real crisis. He said, the times are never so bad that a good man can't live in them. Good man or a good woman can't live in them. So that would be my encouragement to young people. Uh, no matter how dark it might look, uh, they are called to be salt and light in the arena right now. If they have that calling, then I want to challenge them to, to do it and come look me up at the King's College. I'd love, love to chat with you over coffee. And do you have any advice for those who are not in college, American voters? You know, I'm an historian, so I'm going to say this. Uh, we all need a better grasp of America's history, of our, especially the 20th century, of our role in the world. Uh, that can give us, um, what, uh, perspective. Uh, there's a line from C.S. Lewis who said that, you know, the scholar has lived in many ages 
and that helps to make the scholar somewhat immune to the cataract of nonsense that pours forth from the microphone of this age. And the cataract of nonsense we've had to deal with over the last 18 months has been astonishing. A lot of it is because of uh, our lack of historical understanding, America's role in the world in the past, as we think about its role going into the future. So I would just really recommend my fellow citizens read good biographies, good historical biographies, so we can get a good grip on, okay, what does great statesmanship look like? Read some great biographies, you know? Ronald Reagan, Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, that's good, good places to start right there as we think about not only this administration, but the next administration four years down the road, the kind of men and women we want to see entering into public office, the kind of standards we want to set for them. Read good historical biographies, that'll help. Good, and you gave us some recommendations. That was gonna be my follow-up question. Um, are there any particular ones that you recommend of those? You said Thatcher, Reagan, and I'm assuming Churchill. Churchill, I well, Ma Max Hastings uh, uh, on Churchill's uh, called the Churchill's, or Winston's War. Max Hastings, Winston's War, which I finished recently. It's a fabulous biography. I mean, it's warts and all. This is not hagiography. Hey it's a real honest biography of Churchill's war leadership. Uh, but you come away deeply, deeply challenged and inspired by this thing. I would absolutely recommend uh, that book there. I just started reading Charles Moore's uh, book, uh, his series he'll do on Margaret Thatcher. I'm actually an advisor to the House of Thatcher at the King's College. We have a, uh, a fraternity and sorority system based on great leaders, and one of them is the House of Thatcher. I'm proud to be a, a, a key advisor there to the House of Thatcher. The women of Thatcher uh, there at King's are a tremendous bunch of women. So, I like that phrase, House of Thatcher. It sounds very... Uh, Hogwarts-esque. <laughs> Very much. We have a House of Reagan, a House of Churchill, of course, House of Lewis, C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. and a House of Thatcher and a number of other houses there. So. Very good. Yeah. Are there any rivalries between Oh, there are constant rivalries. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love yeah. that. Bitter, I... bitter, bitter rivalries. <laughs> to close out, are there any questions you wish I had asked that I didn't ask or any topics that just you know pull on your heart that you want to say something about? You know, I think just one thing I, worth saying here, Mark, given this election and how uh, Christians were divided on this, just like the American people were divided on this in many ways, I think one of the casualties of this election was truth. I think uh, people on both sides of the aisle, I think Christians of all denominations, uh, there, there was to some degree an unwillingness to face hard truths and to speak hard truths into the situation. And I'm not, I will, we don't need to mention names and all of that, um, but I think there was a kind of uh, an anxiety and a fear and an anger that was out there in the electorate that caused people on both sides of the political aisle to simply not want to tell the truth and to face hard truths about their candidates. And that does not serve our political system well. So I want to see Christians, of all people, be truth tellers in the public square. Truth tellers. I can definitely see that. Especially if you're you know, hard left or hard right where you would never consider the other side or a third party or anything else yeah. where you uh, accept the ideas that support your cause but then you ignore the other everything else the or evidence, you yeah. talk about something else instead or minimize it. When there's a policy question, whether it is trade, whether it is yeah. how do we deal with you know our allies not spending enough on their militaries and right. so forth, how do we deal with that? We need to deal with the truth in order to get to an appropriate yes. policy. Yes. So yes, that yeah. that should be, a, I think, a prayer going forward. Absolutely. Good word. So I want to thank you for coming in. It's a great conversation. And I hope we'll have you in again. I'm sure there will be plenty to talk about over the next four years, especially when you mention that there will be some crisis. You know, we can't predict right now what that crisis will be. But once it happens, we'll want to have a conversation about that. Terrific, Mark. Great being with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.